This summer we are doing a sermon series on the book of James and last week one of the longtime members of this church, a, a pillar in this church, said to me after the service, I, I just love the book of James. It, it tells us to get up off our duffs and do something. And I said, mind if I quote you on that? He said, not by name. But his statement is a great summary of the book of James. It's a very practical book about how to put our faith into action so that it makes a difference in our lives. And it's it's a book filled with lots of practical advice. Don't show favoritism. Care for the poor. Watch what you say. That's why James gets on my nerves. Sometimes feels like it's your parents nagging at you. Do this, do that. And it doesn't sometimes feel like a very grace-oriented book. That's why Martin Luther didn't like it, said it was an epistle of straw. He actually wanted to take it out of the Bible, which, parenthetically, ever want to do that? Just take certain parts out of the Bible that you don't like? It'd be kind of handy, wouldn't it? Luther wanted to get rid of it because he felt that what James was saying was that in order to be right with God, we have to do a lot of good works to get God to like us. Do more, try harder, be better, and then maybe we'll be made right with God. But that is not what James is saying. The whole New Testament makes it clear that what makes us right with God is that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. And wherever, whenever we accept that and say, Jesus, I accept your sacrifice, that makes us right with God, period. God loves us just as we are and not as we should be. New Testament is clear about that. But God also loves us enough not to leave us the way he found us. And that's what James' main point is. A living faith will make a difference in our lives. I saw a documentary on Madonna a while back. And don't ask me why I was watching a documentary on Madonna. I don't want to answer that. And they're talking about Madonna's spirituality. She meditates, she does yoga, that sort of thing. And in the documentary, a friend said, and the best thing about Madonna's religion is it doesn't ask Madonna to stop being Madonna. Wouldn't want that, would we? (laughs) What good is that? I want a faith that makes me better, stronger, wiser, braver, kinder, gives me joy, makes me whole, makes me more like Jesus because that's who I want to be. Ever since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, we have defined faith in the West in a really stupid way. We have defined faith as an intellectual assent to the right set of doctrines. That's what James calls a dead faith. All head, no action, all hat, no cattle. And that can lead to some pretty weird stuff. I recently read about a church that got in this massive argument over whether or not to have a Christmas tree inside the sanctuary. And, and one day, one group drugged the Christmas tree outside the church, and the next day, they had another group drug it back into the church. Eventually, they ended up suing each other over this. That's a dead faith. I mean, do you think any non-Christian looking at that would go, hey, I want to go to a church like that, where they're fighting over picky little theological things that aren't even in the Bible. Sign me up. Sounds like a party. That's what happens when we limit our faith to nothing more than intellectual assent to the right set of doctrines. But if what was happening in that church instead was that marriages were being healed, and people were finding freedom from addictions, and people were helping each other out in times of need, and sharing their resources and serving the world, and the people in that church were filled with an infectious sense of joy. 
Well, now that's the faith that makes a difference. That's the faith I want. That's the faith the world out there wants. Now, I'm not saying that what we believe isn't important. It is. It's very important that we believe that Jesus really was God, that he died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, that the Bible is God's authoritative word to us. It's important to believe that because if we do, it can lead to some pretty radical changes in our lives. If, for instance, we really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we'll be willing to take some risks for him because we're not afraid. But faith is more than intellectual assent to a right set of doctrines. Even the devil believes in God, for all the good it does not A real living faith will make a difference in our lives. It will be a life-altering, perspective-shifting, cataclysmic experience of the risen Christ. The great postmodern question is not, is it true? That's the Enlightenment question. The great postmodern question is, so what? I remember talking to a Stanford student about the reasons I believe Jesus was raised from the dead, the evidence for that. And at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, I think you're right. I think Jesus really was raised from the dead. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, so? Now, part of me thought, okay, we've just concluded that a man was raised from the dead. Say what you want, but it seems significant, right? But as I thought about it, I thought, what a good question. So what? What difference does faith make? And that's what James is talking about. When James says faith without works is dead, he is not saying that you've got to work harder to get God to love you. He's saying a living faith is going to change you if it's alive. And that statement, faith without works is dead, is both a descriptive statement, a fact, and a prescriptive statement. It's a descriptive statement of just a plain fact. If we don't act on what we believe, do we really believe it? Back in the 70s, a tightrope walker named George Blondin walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He walked across it a couple of times, hopped up and down on the rope a couple of times. Well, then he got a wheelbarrow full of dirt and started rolling it across the tightrope over Niagara Falls. He did this nine or ten times over Niagara Falls on a tightrope, this wheelbarrow full of dirt. After about the tenth time, he pushed the wheelbarrow right in front of a tourist who was watching, and, and the tourist said, I believe you could do that all day. So Blondin dumped the dirt out of the wheelbarrow and said, Really? Get in. I can say I believe something, but if I don't act on it, do I really believe it? I can say the chair will hold me up, I believe it, but if I don't sit in it, do I really believe it? The most basic biological definition of life is that which grows and changes. If our faith produces no growth in our lives, it is dead. That is just a descriptive statement of a fact. But it's also a prescriptive statement as well. Because if faith without works is dead, what killed it was probably the lack of works. If we do not exercise our faith, it dies. The basic Christian doctrine is the incarnation. God became man. And part of what that means is that any idea, no matter how good, even God, is not very helpful to us unless it comes in the flesh. It is just more real in the flesh. The tree against which I lean will always be more real than the tree I can think of in my head. It's like playing the piano. I can study the score for Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata all I want, but it doesn't become real unless I play it with my fingers. 
But if I practice it a lot, eventually my fingers will automatically know where to go on the keyboard. It'll become a part of me. It'll be muscle memory. What we, when we do what we believe, it becomes real. It becomes a part of us. So, how do we move from a dead faith to a dynamic, life-changing faith instead? How do we make that move from dead faith to dynamic faith? Two things. First, we have to experience God's love. Now, we all know that God loves us. We've got it in our heads. We're good Presbyterians. We've heard a thousand sermons on it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. God loves me. God loves me. But have you experienced it? Really experienced it in your gut? To be honest, I'm not sure I fully have myself, just to be honest. In fact, I think even that phrase, experience God's love, is a little foreign to a lot of us, almost like a foreign language, doesn't even make any sense. We don't even know what that means, to experience God's love. But I honestly think that this is something God is starting to do in our church. In the last couple of months, I've had a dozen people or more talk to me about experiences, not theologies they've had in their little heads, experiences they've had of God's love. Some of them have talked about being in prayer and suddenly feeling physically hugged. It just, they could feel like someone was hugging them. Or feeling an intense rush of heat in their body. It was a physical experience. It wasn't something in their heads. It was a physical experience. Dynamic faith starts with experiencing God's love, not just having theology about God's love. Now, how do we get that experience? Well, for starters, you've got to ask for it in prayer, frequently. Lord, please give me an experience of your love. Reading scripture can help, and as I've said in the past, put your name in scripture. Anytime it will fit in a passage of scripture, insert your name. For God so loved Scott that he gave his only begotten son that Scott shall not die if he believes in it. Another thing you can do, and I'd encourage you to do it, is call Pastor Terry Tripp and make an appointment for our inner healing prayer ministry. One of the best ways to experience God's love that there is. We have to experience God's love, not just have theology about God's love. When I did college ministry, I had an intern who was this this huge guy who's kind of super good at, at sports, super athlete. But whenever it came time to speak in front of the group, he would just freak out. Remember, the issue was he felt that he had to prove himself to God and to everyone else, and if he didn't do a good job, nobody was going to love him, and, and this just stressed him out. Well, several times I let him off the hook from speaking because I felt so sorry for him. But the last time he was scheduled to speak, he said, no matter what I say, don't let me off the hook this time. You shouldn't go saying stuff like that, right? So, so the day before his talk came, and he was trying to write it, and he was just freaking out as usual. And, and he, you know, I went over to talk to him, and he said, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I, I can't write this talk. And, you know, ironically, he was talking about God's unconditional love for us. And he was crying, and his face was just soaked with tears and other fluids. And, you know, at one point, he collapsed in my arms and sobbed all over me. And, you know, and I don't do that. And I, I thought, get a hold of yourself, man, and stop touching me. You know? <laughs> Pull it together. I, I'm getting better, but then not so much. Rich told me at the start of this service, it's a good thing I'm not our pastoral care pastor. <laughs> and I said, look, God loves you. I'm going to love you no matter what you say or no matter what you don't say, but I'm not letting you off the hook. You've got to do this thing. So I prayed with him, and I got him started on his talk, thought I got him on his way. Well, the next day, when he was supposed to give the talk, I 
he came to the group. I said, well, do you have a talk? And he said, no, but I have an experience. So he got up and he told the group about how he freaked out and cried all over me and how awkward I'd been about that. And, and then and then he, and about 9 o'clock that night, he still didn't have a talk. So he left his office at the church and went over to the fellowship hall in the church where the senior citizens were having a social. So he joined in and started dancing with all of these women in their 80s. He was about 24 at the time, so that must have been interesting. And he thought somehow that would spark something, you know, for his talk, but it didn't. Went back to his office, still couldn't write a talk. He was praying, and then he said he suddenly felt Jesus sitting right next to him. It was as real as the couch he was sitting on. It was physical. And he felt Jesus say, show up tomorrow with nothing to say and you'll see how much I love you. No matter what. And he, then he said it felt like Jesus was hugging him. So he went home and he went to sleep. Well, he got up the next day and he told this whole story to the college group. And, and then when he was done with that story, he moved away from the podium, walked out in the audience and he said, here's what I know. Here's what I now know. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me no matter what what and then with tears in his eyes he said and here's what I want you to know God loves you no matter what you've done no matter what you haven't done God loves you no matter what it was not the most complex theology I'd ever heard in my life but it was electric because you could feel the intensity of the experience that he had just had I mean, his words were pretty simple, but you could just feel the power of this experience. It wasn't what he knew, it's what he had learned. It's what he had experienced in his gut. It was one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. And that experience left him a different man. From then on, he was more confident, less afraid, more willing to take risks, because he knew that he knew that he knew in his gut that God loved him. Not in his head, but in his heart. Dynamic faith starts with an experience of God's love. Have you had one? Have you had one? The next step in discovering a dynamic faith is to trust God and obey Him. As I said last week, God loves us. What that means is we can trust that when He says, do this and don't do that, it's not because He's a mean ogre bent on keeping us from having fun. It's because He wants us to have an amazing life. That's why just before this passage, James refers to God's law that leads to liberty. Now, to our American ears, that sounds like an oxymoron. How can law lead to liberty? Right? I mean, law sounds like something that's imprisoning a bunch of do's and don'ts. And if I can't do exactly what I want to do when I want to do it, then I'm not free. That is so American. That is so our culture. No, you can do exactly what you want and really screw up your life. And then you're not free, you're screwed up. And there's a difference. <laughs> and you're in pain. And there are people around you who are in pain. And you've constrained your life and you've put yourself in a prison of your own making. That's not free, that's hell. But when we know that God loves us, we can do what he says to do, knowing that he tells us to do that for our own best interests, to make us whole and to give us joy. For instance, God says to forgive others. So I think of Antoine Rutayasire, who we're working with in Rwanda to build the Center for Champions for Street Kids. Many members of his family were killed in the genocide there in 1994, and he knew that God called him to forgive the killers, but he really struggled with that for years. Who wouldn't? 
Then he decided finally he needed to deal with this, so he took a weekend. He went away by himself. He didn't sleep. He didn't eat. He prayed. He read scripture. He yelled at God. He cried. And then he felt an overwhelming physical experience of God's love. And then he was able to say out loud the names of each of the killers and one by one forgive them in his heart. And let go of all that anger and all of that bitterness that had been eaten, up, eaten him up like acid for years. And now he is one of the most gentle but also most courageous men I have ever met in my life. He is literally transforming an entire country. Presidents and senators look to him for guidance and leadership. He experienced God's love. He did what God said. And his faith wasn't dead. It was dynamic. There's an elder in our church who was going through a really tough time in her marriage. She and her husband were fighting a lot. They were having problems with their teenage children. And that was adding a lot of stress to their marriage. Some of you have been there. You know that. She had been mistreating her husband. Her husband had been mistreating her. One day she was looking through a children's book and she saw a picture of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And she could see in that picture God's love for us. And she could kind of feel God nudging her to do that for her husband. So that night she got a bowl of water, knelt down, and literally washed her husband's feet. And then they both started to cry. And they began to talk. And they're able to forgive each other. And she says that was the turning point in their whole marriage. And from then on, their marriage went into a whole new level of intimacy and joy and trust and honesty and just fun. And since then, it's just gotten better and better and better. She experienced God's love. She did what he said. And her faith wasn't dead. It was dynamic. It made a difference. So let me ask you. If you were arrested for being a Christian... What evidence could be brought from your life to prove the point, other than going to church? If you were arrested for being a Christian, what evidence from your life could be brought to prove the point? Have you experienced God's love in a way that left you different? And if not, will you spend some time in prayer asking to have that experience? And then will you put your faith into action so that it's not dead, but it's dynamic, it's difference-making, it changes you, it changes others. It's a lot like riding a bike. You know, if we all studied the theory of propulsion, the physics of how such a skinny little thing can stay upright, and if we gave intellectual assent to the theoretical possibilities of bike riding, but never rode a bike, it wouldn't be much fun, would it? And it would do us no good. But when we actually try it out, when we actually do what we say we believe, it becomes part of us. And you know what? Once you've done it, it's with you forever. You never forget how to ride a bike. Because what we do in our bodies, we remember forever. It becomes a part of us. Not just what we think in our heads, but what we do, we remember forever. Now, just like riding a bike in life and in faith, there may be times when we mess up, fall down, or a little wobbly from time to time. That's all right. James doesn't say be perfect doers of your faith. He just says be doers of your faith. And the Holy Spirit is always there guiding us along. When I was learning to ride a bike, my dad would say, don't think about it, just pedal and you'll stay up. And when you're five, that sounds like a really stupid thing to say, right? No, it's little, it's skinny, it won't stay up. You know, but I, I'd do it, I, I'd just pedal away as fast as I could and he would run behind me with his hand on the bike to keep it steady. And I'd say, don't let go, don't let go, don't let go, and I'd keep pedaling. 
Until one day I looked back and I realized that he'd let go. And that I had learned how to ride a bike. And I was free. Free to have all the fun of riding a bike. Free to get places I'd never gone before. Free to move faster and faster than I'd ever gone in my whole life. When we put our faith into action, we move from bondage to freedom, sorrow to joy, from death to a a dynamic, difference-making faith that leaves us stronger, braver, wiser, more joy-filled, more like Jesus. So as James says in this passage, let's not be hearers of God's word only, but in Nike's words, just do it. Lord Jesus, help us to just do what we say we believe. Lord, knowing that we won't do it perfectly, but knowing that you're there to help us along and pick us up when we mess up. Lord, help us to do this in a way that points to you and leaves us and your world different. And we'll be grateful. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.